Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we are looking at the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And if you're just uh, dropping in here with us, even uh, the last couple of weeks or this evening for the first time, uh, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew on Lord's Day mornings, but because of the particular place that we are in and wanting to have some additional time, we've moved that to our evening services, and this is the third time that we have done that. <clears throat> and we are looking in particular at a section that begins in verse number 20, where the Lord Jesus made what was to his audience that day a very shocking statement when he said that they were going to have to have a righteousness, as you can see it there in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, that exceeded that of the most externally religious and the most respected men of their day. They were going to have to have a righteousness that exceeded theirs if they were going to, as it says at the end of the verse, enter into the kingdom of heaven. And when Jesus began to illustrate what he was preaching about, what kind of righteousness would exceed the, the most externally religious men of the day? Well, he said in verse number 21 that many uh, thought that if they did not murder, which was the sixth commandment, the sixth of the ten commandments, if they had not murdered other men, they could not be guilty of violating that sixth commandment. But moving into verse number 22, Jesus said you could be guilty of that by the passions of the heart and then continuing on the end of the verse by the words of the tongue. And in a similar way, beginning in verse number 27, many have thought that as long as they were not physically unfaithful to their husband or wife, they could not be guilty of violating the seventh commandment, which forbids adultery. But in verse number 28, Jesus said that a man could commit adultery by lust in the heart, looking with lust in the heart. And then beginning in verse number 31, you could also violate the seventh commandment another way. And that's where we've been these last several weeks. Notice again verses 31 and 32. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. And what we've seen over these past two weeks exploring this, this text and even the theme and related verses in the scripture is that even in the kind of circumstances where, where a spouse desired to stay in the marriage, but their spouse put them away, or in a situation where they were forced to take action because of the repeated and unrepentant immorality of another, that would be our understanding of that exception clause as we worked through it last week. In a kind of situation where they were put away, or in a kind of situation where they were forced to take some action because of the repeated, unrepentant sin of their spouse, there still are only two scriptural options. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when Paul was giving counsel to the Corinthians, he said 
that Jesus had already said, if a woman departs, let her reconcile or remain unmarried. So to enter into a second marriage while your former spouse is still alive is adultery. To marry someone whose former spouse is still alive is adultery. And that is in, clear, in, in keeping with the clear teaching of the Lord himself on multiple occasions and confirmed in two different New Testament epistles. Now, if those statements, again, that are summarizing two previous messages, if those <clears throat> leave you with some questions... Then, then I would love to direct you to those previous messages and other resources, and I'm glad to spend time with you. But I would acknowledge that at this point, okay, that straightforward teaching seems very hard-nosed. Okay? It may even seem like, in just the quick summary of it, you may even say, Pastor, it almost seems like there's no room for forgiveness there. Like, like there's no room for mercy for people who, who have faced or are facing these very difficult circumstances. Right? And if you find yourself thinking that way, I want to tell you that you're not alone. And I don't just mean that you're not alone like in, a, in an auditorium like this. But, but you are actually in company with some of our Lord's own disciples. And I want to show you that. Turn forward to chapter 19. Still here in Matthew. But go forward to chapter 19. And you can see beginning in verse 3 the same kind of emphasis that we considered back in, in chapter 5. In this case, the Pharisees were just asking Jesus... What are the lawful reasons to put away a wife? And, and he's gone back and said at the beginning, God made them male and female. And verse 5, a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And now they're one flesh. So what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. <clears throat> and we looked already uh, in our first message at there trying to say, well, what about Moses? And, and Jesus, in verse number 8, says, Moses allowed something because of the hardness of your hearts, but from the beginning that was not so. And then we get to verse 9, and we have Jesus giving the same declaration that we just read in chapter 5 and verse 32. Whosoever puts away his wife, except to be for fornication, shall marry another, commits adultery. Whoever is, whoso marrieth her which is put away, uh, doth commit adultery. And now, look at verse 10. See how the disciples responded. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. Okay? This, the, the response of these men to the Lord's teaching was, was shock. Almost unbelief. I, I can't believe I'm hearing him say this. Now, now, there are several potential ways to understand their thinking. One of the ways is, is that perhaps they're saying, nobody can live with a, life or a li with a wife for a lifetime without at least thinking about and, and wishing he had a way out. I mean, if even the thought of wishing I was out of my marriage is adultery, I better not even get married. 
Um, perhaps some were, were thinking about the fact that he said, if you marry again, it's adultery. And, and maybe they're thinking, you know, I know some people that have been in some pretty hard marriages, and I don't think I could stick it out if I was in their shoes. And, and if there's any possibility, I, I would be stuck like that for a lifetime. It'd be better to just not get married. Or again, maybe somebody would say, I don't think I could handle living the rest of my life alone after I've had a taste of marriage, especially if I have kids and they need a father or mother and, and it's hard to know exactly what they're thinking, but, but it is very clear that when they heard Jesus lay this out, they thought, that teaching is so severe, you better just not even get married. All right? And, brethren, I want to now say that after hearing it and, and, and underscoring the Lord's teaching, if somebody says, that's just too hard, who can, I mean, who can take that? I do want to tell you that it would be a misapplication of the Lord's strong teaching on divorce and remarriage for somebody to say, well, then you better not even get married. And the reason why that is a misapplication is because it is not counting on the Lord's gracious enablement. Look at what the Lord's response is beginning in verse 11. They say, it's just not good to get married. And he said unto them, notice, all men cannot receive this saying. Now, the saying that he's referring to, and you may even just want to circle that and draw a note to yourself, but the saying that he's referring to, that not all men can receive, is the totality of what he had just taught. All right, so he, initiating a divorce is the very spirit of adultery. Marrying after a divorce while the former spouse is still alive is adultery. Okay, the disciples are like, whoa! And Jesus is saying, yes, that is a very high standard. And he's acknowledging that his teaching would not be accepted by some. Some won't receive that. Now, the ones that he's referring to in this case would be men like the Pharisees. Who could not receive, quite frankly, they could not receive the fullness of any of Jesus' teaching. The Lord's standard of righteousness in any area of life is completely above the reach of man in his own strength. And so it is indeed true that many cannot accept and practice the Lord's standards in this arena as well for marital faithfulness and marital purity. Yeah, it's Jesus said, yeah, you're right. Many will not be able to receive this. But notice how the verse finishes. All men cannot receive this saying, now notice this, <clears throat> save they to whom it is given. Now, brethren, that is to say this, that God can give a man or a woman strength to do right in a difficult marriage. And God can give a man or woman strength to stay single if the case applies, and even raise children apart from remarriage after divorce. God can give people strength to do what they don't think they could ever do. Now, you could recall perhaps a situation where the Lord rebuked 
a, a rich man's clinging to his money. And do you remember what he said there? He said, it is easier for a camel, think with me, you can even say it, it's easier for a camel to go through what? The eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And when he said that, the disciples responded by saying, Lord, that's basically impossible then. And Jesus said, and you know this even if you didn't know where it came from, Jesus said, with man, that might be impossible, but with God, what? With God, all things are possible. Now, there's something similar that's going on in this exchange about marriage. Jesus is saying, you may, you may think that you can't handle a difficult marital situation, but with God, all things are what? All things are possible. And brother, I've been ministering now long enough to have talked to many that in some cases were new believers that turned to Christ at a time where their marriage was terrible. And they thought it was a hopeless situation. But they have witnessed the grace of God restore and grow a marriage in a way that is humanly impossible. I remember sitting in some people's house in Milwaukee and started hearing their testimony. And, uh, and they, they, they got... Uh, they got married in horrible situation. They were living a horrible life as, as uh, young newlyweds. And they were trying out all kinds of religion. And they were fighting. And the marriage was terrible. And the man was driving a Milwaukee City bus. And a bus rider gave him a track. And the track uh, directed him to a certain church. And he had started listening to Charles Stanley on the radio. Listen, th- this is what he would do, literally. Okay? He would start drinking on Sunday mornings. He would try to watch Charles Stanley, but, but he'd end up too drunk. So he'd tape it, and he'd drink all afternoon watching NFL football. And on Monday, when he would get over his hangover, he'd put it back in and watch Charles Stanley. And somebody gave him a gospel track. And it pointed to a church in the Milwaukee area, and he started to go, and and God saved him. And when he came home and told his wife, she thought, it's another nutball thing that he's on, okay? And, And she had determined to leave him that week and be done with it. But she said, I'll stay a couple days just to see what kind of crazy thing he's in. And you know what? God changed him, and she watched it. And then God saved her. And I'm, I'm not telling you that that thing has been without its bumps along the way, but they're still married today, and this is decades later. Another family in our previous ministry told a similar circumstance that even after they got saved, they didn't think that there was a way their marriage could stick together. And they're married today, and they have three boys that have married honorably and are raising grandchildren honorably. God can do what men think is impossible. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, yeah, some can't receive this, but God will give grace if you'll believe, and God will do things that you can't imagine. And then he goes on to illustrate even more the grace of God by the reference to eunuchs in verse 12. And some, again, wow, where does this come from? Well, Look at what he says in verse 12. He said, there are some eunuchs 
who were so born. That is, some birth defect. Okay, they've been eunuchs since their mother's womb. And then you can see the next type of situation. There are some eunuchs who were made so by <coughs> the act of other men. And, and what he's saying there is there are some who are not able to marry and bear children. Okay? Birth defect or the act of, of, of some other man. But then look at the next phrase. There are some who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Now that is a figurative way of saying that there are some who have chosen singleness for the Lord's work. And they have been, as, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about his own life, they have been given grace to remain single and pure and useful in the Lord's work. And then he says again, look at the end of verse 12, he that is able to receive it, let him do what? Let him receive it. And, and what he's saying is, look, look, are, are you married and perhaps in a difficult situation? God's grace can strengthen you to do right. Are you single, perhaps already having been divorced and, and facing the prospect of being in that situation for many years to come, all right? God's grace can strengthen you to do what you don't think you could do on your own. Is it possible that God would have you to never marry for the Lord's work? And some that are hearing that right now say, oh no, please, Lord, don't give me that gift. <laughs> okay? I can't do it. But it is possible, and his grace will strengthen you to remain single and pure if that's his calling. But brethren, what no one should conclude is what the disciples suggested. No one should conclude that God's standard is just so high, I better not get married. Nobody should conclude God's standard is so high, I might as well forget it because there's no way I could live up to it. That is a misapplication of the Lord's strong teaching on divorce and remarriage, which doesn't factor in his gracious enablement. And then before we move off of this theme, next week, move, I, I trust, move forward in the Sermon on the Mount, I want to raise another misapplication of the Lord's teaching. And this one is going to come from outside of the text that we're going to try to wrestle with what the Bible says in answer to it. But this one is going to come <coughs> from those who have made a certain suggestion about someone who has already entered into a second marriage after divorce. Someone who has already remarried after divorce. Now, as I alluded to in our first message, I have encountered people who believe that because remarriage is adultery, right? And at that point, I'll say, yes, I agree. The Bible says it. Because remarriage is adultery, they then make the additional statement that anyone in a second marriage or, or subsequent marriage, while their former spouse is still alive, is living in a constant state of adultery. 
All right? I'm going to come back to that matter of a state of adultery. But some take it a step further and say this. That in God's eyes, the marriage is until death what? Until death parts. So, <clears throat> God never recognizes a second marriage as a, sec- as a marriage at all. Which again is more evidence for the fact that remarriage is, according to this view, a constant state of adultery. And on that basis, some make the additional application that since those two are living in a constant state of adultery, they could not be saved. Now I want to pause here and just say that the New Testament on seven occasions does say that no adulterer is going to heaven. I mean, the Bible says that the penalty for adultery is hell. If someone lives in an unrepentant state of adultery, okay, they are not going to heaven. It's not that it's the unpardonable sin. <clears throat> it's not that they were saved and lost their salvation. It's one of those places where Paul, he wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, be not deceived, know ye not, these people, and there's a list. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right, so some seize on two truths. <clears throat> Remarriage is adultery, and adultery is a sin that the consequence is, is hell. But in between that, they say that somebody who is in a second marriage then is living in a constant state of adultery, and that means they could not be saved. They should not be allowed to join any church, and their advice is that they need to break off that second relationship immediately. Now, you may not have heard that. Somebody expressed it to you. I actually had somebody outside of our church say, it's a shame, I'm talking in a previous ministry, say, it's a shame what has happened with so-and-so, how are they doing? And I actually expressed that actually we're, <laughs> we're seeing God at work in their life and it's really encouraging. And and that person just ended up telling me this view. And he said, well, it's a shame that they're getting deceived by some positive things. And, and he actually accused me of kind of giving encouragement to it. And he started to make this case. That we're standing in the parking lot of our church, and he's starting to make the case to me why I'm aiding and abetting people living in a state of adultery, and I'm going to encourage them to hell. And I said, whoa, 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 let's back up. <clears throat> and um, said, what's your scriptural rationale? Well, I've given it to you. And then he said, actually went to his car and said, here, read this book. And so he gave me this book that has a fairly lengthy book trying to make that case. Now, <clears throat> my response to him then, <clears throat> and then I've written a paper on it since then, is to draw attention to several passages of scripture that really expose some of the error in that viewpoint that I've just given you. One set of passages, we're not going to turn to these tonight, but one set of passages that help are considering those which talk about David and his relationship to Bathsheba. 
the Bible clearly refers to David's intimacy with Bathsheba when she was married to Uriah. The Bible clearly refers to David's relationship with Bathsheba while her husband was alive as adultery. In fact, you know that God sent the prophet Nathan to straightforwardly confront David that he was a guilty man. However, after Bathsheba's husband was dead and <clears throat> David married her, the scripture, 2 Samuel 12, verse 24, is just one. I'm giving you one if you want to write it down and go back. The scripture clearly refers to Bathsheba as David's what? As David's wife. And what I'm just pointing out is that God did make a distinction between adultery and the ongoing marriage relationship. He didn't refer to David's ongoing relationship with Bathsheba as to his mistress or to anything else. He referred to her as his wife. Now, I will add, just before I kind of leave that scene in our thinking, that even after they were married, it is when God sent Nathan to confront David about the adultery that David had never properly owned and confessed and dealt with. And brethren, David did not know the blessing of personal restoration of his fellowship with God until he confessed his sin as sin. But saying that, there is a difference between adultery and marriage. Now, it is at this point where some have acknowledged that distinction, even in the Old Testament. And they have said that, but the Old Testament was different than the New Testament and different than the teaching of Jesus. They'll even say things like, <clears throat> in the, yes, the Old Testament made a, a distinction between adultery and harlotry and marriage, and even in the case of polygamous marriage. Right? So they're saying, yeah, the Old Testament did make some of those distinctions, but that Jesus, here's the proposal, is that Jesus actually changed the standard. Okay? Now, I'm, I'm going to read this I'm going to read one paragraph to you so you see where it goes out of this book by a man named John Koblenz. But he said, the adultery is not past only. It began when the second relationship began. It continues as long as the second relationship continues. The remarriage is ongoing adultery against the former companion as long as that companion lives. All right? You see that case? Okay. Then he says, again... This was not so under Moses, meaning the Old Testament, but it is so under the teachings of Jesus. So you can see that he's suggesting the way God viewed all of this in the Old Testament is different than the way Jesus would view that today. All right, now, in order to evaluate that suggestion, okay, it would be really helpful to us if we actually had an example of the way Jesus interacted. And we do. Okay? And I want to go ahead and have you turn to John chapter 4. And I know this is familiar, but it would be great for us to see it together. John chapter 4, and this passage begins with Jesus going through Samaria to meet the Samaritan woman at the well. And... 
and he initiates conversation with her uh, about water, and he turns it from water to the giving of the gospel. And when he starts to do that, she kind of tries to divert the conversation a little bit, and Jesus is recognizing she really needs to come under conviction of her need. And so, in verse 16 of John 4, notice this, Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no what? I've got no husband. Now look at this. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. She may be thinking at that point, Phew, he took it. But what does he say? For thou hast had, how many? Five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy what? Is not thy husband. All right, now, the reason I've turned here is to say this, that, that Jesus, again, enumerated the fact that she had had five previous marriages. Okay, so this is not an upstanding moral woman, right? But when he enumerates the five, he makes a clear distinction between those five and the guy she is now what? The guy she's now living with. And in his mind, even in Jesus' mind and in his communication, even those five marriages are different than living with somebody that she's not married to. Okay? And I'll just go back to this. <clears throat> Jesus' terminology here is no different than the Scripture's terminology throughout the whole Old Testament. Jesus didn't say, you've had five previous what? He didn't say you've had five previous affairs. Along with this one you've now had. That, this one that you're now in. He didn't even say this. If I let, let, Let's give her the first one, okay? He didn't say, you've had one marriage and now four additional adulterous relationships beside the guy that you're living with now. Okay? When speaking of the marriage relationships subsequent to the first one, Jesus referred to each of them as marriages. Now, with all of this there, and I know it's warmer, okay? We've got one air conditioner unit not working and one not working, so by the evening, that, this is where we're at right now, okay? So if that's a distraction to you, if you're wondering, why won't that pastor turn on the air early enough, okay? <clears throat> well, we just don't have it right now. Um, hopefully you're waking up a little. Here's what, I wanna, here's what I want to take this, the issue of what we're wrestling with, down to really a fine point question, and that is this. Does the Bible teach that adultery is an act? Or is it an act that results in an ongoing state? Okay. Is, is a second marriage, I'm just going to get right to that, 
or third or fourth or whatever it may be. This lady had had five. <coughs> is a second marriage an act of adultery or does it involve living in a constant state of adultery? That's the question. And the answer is this, that there is not one example anywhere in the whole Bible, Old or New Testament, where a second marriage is represented as a state of adultery. A legal marriage is always referred to as a marriage, even if it was the second or third or more. And it is distinguished from what is not a marriage, what is just a live-in situation. The parties involved, all right, in a second marriage or a third marriage are always referred to in terms of the husband and the wife in distinction from just a live-in situation. Romans chapter 7 does indicate that if a woman is married to another man while her first husband is alive, she is an adulteress. It uses that very wording. But, brethren, that no more implies a state of adultery than calling somebody a murderer communicates that they are in continuously committing acts of murder. We have to, in, in this situation, as in all of the ones that we encounter, we have to interpret the Scripture in light of the Scripture. And, and I'm not meaning to be trite or just clever, but we have to let the Holy Spirit be the interpreter of what he has written. And when we let him interpret what he has superintended those men to write, there are no contradictions. His consistent interpretation is that adultery, remarriage, okay, after divorce, is an act of adultery. It does violate God's moral law, but it is not an ongoing state. Now, with all of that said, somebody may just say, I hope I never encounter that, where I even need all of that. Okay, why would we walk all the way through it? In part, to just come back to this, what kind of relationship should a church have with those that are involved in, that, that, that are already remarried? Okay. What kind of relationship to, should a church have with people who are divorced and remarried? And the first answer to that is that the church should tell people that are divorced and remarried that they should be ready to agree with God's mind. That God says that that remarriage was not his will. It is an act of adultery. And like David, make a full and complete confession of the sin before God. And where needs be to God's people. <coughs> Excuse me. And when, when David spoke of his sins being forgiven. Remember this. He spoke of the blessedness of the man in whom there was a spirit with no guile. That is no deceit. 
there was a point <coughs> where David said, I've tried to rationalize this and cover way too long, and it is time for me to just get totally clear with God, and that is no rationalization, no defense, no justification. I was wrong, I was dead wrong, and God just completely forgive me. I, I take your perspective on the matter. And brethren, if, if, if a church is going to give a corporate witness to God's truth and contribute to an atmosphere of the highest ideals, then a church will need to insist on that being the mindset and the heartbeat of its membership. But secondly, all right, so the first is to just say, if, if you have been remarried after divorce, is to say, take God's mindset and own it. Secondly, we all need to remember, now I'm talking to, to our, ch our church as a whole. We all need to remember that a broken and contrite heart, God never what? God never despises, and I'm even using that because that's another, the first text I quoted from was Psalm 32, and the second one is Psalm 51, and those are penitential psalms, and both of those are about David when he got right with God about that adultery with Bathsheba. And, and David ended up saying, as he confessed his sin, he said, there are no sacrifices I could give, or else I would give it. Like, there, there was no offering David could give that would clear him before God of the sin that he had committed in the whole picture related to Bathsheba. And many people have been in that kind of situation. I, I blew it in the marriage. I blew it in the divorce. I blew it in the remarriage. The whole thing. And I, Pastor, you know, in some cases have just said, Pastor, what can I do? I can't make up for it. And you know what I say? Neither could David. He couldn't. So you know what he said to God? I can't do anything about this. The only thing I have to offer you is a broken and contrite heart. But you know what God had to offer him? David, if you come to me with a broken and contrite heart, I never look lightly on that and I never hold anybody at arm's distance. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, thou will not despise. And brethren, here's, here's the truth for, for a church, okay? We can't ask anybody to do penance. There's none that they could do. But if God accepts evidence of brokenness, then what should a church accept? A church should do the same. And the church should say, look, we all have needs in our past. This one is a little more visible with our brethren but they've got evidence of saying i take god's position and they've been broken about it and and we ought to not despise that or take lightly and we ought to say look if that's all god expects then that's all we expect now first corinthians chapter five you know that passage when i say you don't need to turn there but in first corinthians chapter five paul told the church that they ought to put an immoral church member out of the church. He said it four times. That's the passage on church discipline. 
but to the same church he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that when the discipline has served its purpose and somebody has turned, then the church needs to also extend forgiveness. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he pointed to the danger of an unforgiving spirit. And I know you've heard this before, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is the place where he says, lest Satan get an advantage, we're not ignorant of his what? We're not ignorant of his devices. The context of that is the church that at first wouldn't deal with the immorality now is at a place where it won't extend forgiveness. And immorality spreading in a church like Leaven is a big problem, but an unforgiving spirit in a church is a big problem too. And Satan will use that to get his foot in the door and promote all kinds of evil designs. We must be aware of a judgmental and unforgiving spirit and the effects that that would have on a life and on lives. And lastly, and I'm still talking about how should, how should we relate? What should those that have already experienced divorce or remarriage be thinking? All of us, wherever we are about any of these circumstances in life, all of us really need to believe Romans 8.28. And brethren, I'm not just saying, oh, I'm just going to throw that out to end this message. I'm talking about very specifically, we all need to believe that all things work together for the good of my own growth in the Christ-likeness. And all things work together for the good, ultimately, of the glory of God for those who do what? For those who love God. Now, one sign of somebody really loving God is that broken and contrite spirit that we were just talking about. And brethren, where, where somebody has been broken and contrite before the Lord, God can take, listen, this is the case for all of us. I know we're thinking something specific here. But God can take my past sin even. And God can take sin against, uh, of others against me. And God can use the entire circumstance it's created. God can use even the scars, the limitations about some public ministry. God can use the hardships. God can use all of that to actually bless me and bring him glory. Because he is always what? I didn't know, our, I didn't know we were going to sing this. But he is always what? He's always good. See, I know without a doubt that my dad's unfaithfulness to my mom when I was 11 and 12 and his coming and going and coming and going and ultimately leaving my mom for good, I know without a doubt that that sin against my mom was sin in the highest order in the eyes of God. I know that remarriage to his second wife was dead wrong. And it has left multiple uh, impacts in, in, on lives in heartbreaking ways. I haven't, in these messages, I think you know, or any other, even in my own mindset, I have never said, it. perhaps it really was okay after all. 
But I can also testify this, especially since my dad and his wife really came completely clean with the Lord. I mean, no deceit, no guile. And in their case, because of the nature of the sin, they, they actually went back publicly before the church that they were in, where this had all taken place, and they hadn't been in that church for years, but they went back there, and they confessed their sin, and they asked for forgiveness. And they had a remarkably broken and contrite spirit by the grace of God. I not only had a wonderful last decade, I didn't know it would be that short, not only had a wonderful last decade of, of sweet fellowship and relationship with my dad, but I also did with his wife, and she, to this day, even after my dad's death, has been a source of great blessing to us. And I could say the same thing is true about my stepbrother and two stepsisters and their spouses. And brother, I'm just telling you, we consider them family. And we thank God for them. And, and I... It, it doesn't matter what the background has been. When, when God's people humble themselves and they have broken and contrite hearts, God takes even sin and turns it around for their good and for his glory. And so, listen, if you're married, and I'm talking about you're remarried, after, after divorce, I, I would say to you, Publicly, what I've said to others privately, and that is this. If you're married, love your spouse fervently. Man, love her unreservedly. Woman, love that man unreservedly. And, and quite frankly, don't ever apologize for considering your spouse to be a blessing from the Lord. Don't feel like you can't say, oh, so-and-so is such a blessing to me. No, thank God that they are. Even if you know you, you didn't enter into marriage, you shouldn't have entered into marriage the way that you did. God is so good that as you've humbled him, yourself, God has made that spouse to be a special blessing to you. Thank him for it. And I want to say to any child that is under the leadership of parents that have this in their background, Sometimes children can get there and say, well, hasn't the sin of my parents so messed up my life that nothing can ever be right for me? And I would say this, that you should be absolutely confident that no matter what others might be responsible for before the Lord, God has not allowed anything into your life by mistake. It hasn't caught him off guard. God intends for even what's happened in the sin of others outside of you to be part of the fabric of who you are and what he wants to develop you to be for his glory. And that's the very situation I, I can say personally that I've lived out and can attest to. I know that all of what's gone on while others have sinned and are responsible for the, before the Lord, God has never done anything to me that wasn't good. 
and isn't part of all of what he's intended for me to be. And I would just add this. If you, if you are in a parental role, and please excuse me, just I didn't want to come back to a fourth message, all right? <laughs> if you're in a parental role of children, and that role came through steps that you know are not right, and I'm just talking about your stepdad, and I know we don't always use those, I never, I've never referred to my dad's wife as my stepmom. I just don't even communicate that way. But I understand that legally and, and officially, that's what we're talking about. Okay. But if, if you're in that kind of situation, and, and you know that, I mean, now I have a responsibility for some of these children in my home, and it, it wasn't right the way we entered into this. Yes, but God has... In, in keeping with his superintendence of all of that, those children are in your home. Don't apologize. Don't feel insecure. Don't feel like I'm not up to this. Seek the Lord for grace to be the most honorable influence in their lives that you can be and embrace it and be a faithful steward to what he has entrusted you. And, brethren, if any of us, now, and I'll just expand it out beyond the particulars, if any of us are ever tempted to think that the circumstances in my life are all a big mistake, I mean, my whole life is like one big accident. Sinful one, perhaps, but it's all a big mistake. And that, and that somehow your life has just spun out of God's ability to superintend. You may say, Pastor, I know that all of that Romans 8.28 stuff is true for most people. But I mean, look at mine. This is just out of control mistakes. Then I would just say, really, how big is your God? And I'm not trying to say that in an ugly way. I'm saying what I had to embrace for decades how big is my God how much will I trust him with my life how much will you trust him listen I can tell you what I've clung to the Lord God is a sun and a shield the Lord will give grace and glory and no good thing will he withhold from them that what that walk uprightly. Every good gift comes from above, James says, from the Father of lights with whom is no variable, neither shadow of turning. So I'm not going to get anything good from me that I don't get connected to God. And no good thing will he withhold if I'll walk with him as best as I know how. And that means that my whole life can be under the umbrella of, of his goodness if I'll just trust him about that, no matter what else has gone on in the past, and look to him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?